knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. There's a famous proverb that many of you have probably heard ascribed to Buddhism, Hinduism. It came somewhere from the East, and it kind of goes like this. There's a group of blind men, and there is an elephant and these different people are trying to describe what is an elephant like. And so, you know, one takes a hold of the tail and says an elephant is very much like a rope. And someone else touches the elephant's side and it's like, no, an elephant is like a wall, like very hard and thick and sturdy. And someone else is touching the elephant's ear and says, well, it's, it's kind of like a leaf almost, like this large fan-like thing. And someone else takes a hold of the tusk and says it's like a large hose that you you know, could draw water through and someone takes a hold of the tusk and says it's, you know, it's hard and it's sharp and it's like a sword. And this is often shared, this proverb, in the realm of spirituality to say it is very presumptuous for anyone to assume that they know what God is like. None of us see God. And so we're kind of like maybe feeling a part of God, touching or experiencing a part of God, and then saying God is like this. And we may be partly correct. We may be mostly wrong. Um, and it leads to this kind of relativism of like the God you encounter may not be the same God that I encounter and vice versa. Um, but this, this whole proverb falls apart when you ask yourself the question, what if the elephant spoke and just told all the blind people, this is what I'm like. Well, we come to a text this morning where God shows us how he speaks to us, where we're not left kind of grappling around in the dark, as it were, saying, I know you're there, I just don't know what you're like, and I hope to experience some reality of what you're like, because this most famous of Psalms shows us that God speaks, and we'd be, we'd be foolish to reject his word to not hear his word, not embrace his word. So here's kind of this theme that I'm going to give you, and then we'll walk through these three points this morning. The big idea here is we were made to respond to the glory of God that is revealed in the skies and the grace of God that is revealed in the scriptures. We're made to respond to that, and I'll show you how. So point number one, 
through the first handful of verses here, big idea is that the skies are proclaiming God's glory. Okay, and we'll just kind of walk through and unpack this together. So verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And as we've seen before, as we walk through the Psalms and this Hebrew poetry, one of the key features of Hebrew poetry is this kind of parallelism where subsequent lines form a couplet that say the same thing two different ways. And that's what we see here. The heavens and the sky above are synonyms. And basically, the psalmist is talking about everything overhead from the clouds and kind of the weather patterns that we perceive like immediately overhead and around us all the way out into what we think of as space with the sun and the moon and the stars and and nebula and galaxies and black holes and all of those things deep, deep into space. And notice he's saying those skies declare or proclaim And it's not simply like saying or speaking or announcing. There's some interesting words here that is more like the heavens enumerate the glory of God. The heavens manifest the glory of God. The heavens, the second word is make conspicuous the glories of God. And I want you to even begin to think of maybe... Um, a beautiful sunrise or sunset that you've experienced where you, you just look and you're like, this, this is breathtaking. This is powerful. You know, the other night, like sitting out and, and having dinner and watching this storm go across the, the northern sky and these flashes of lightning, and there's an awesomeness to a lot of what we experience, let alone if you were to see some of these pictures that are coming back from these deep space telescopes of like just the, the colors and the forms of, of distant galaxies and the beauty and the magnitude and just the size and realizing like how tiny we are relative to these things, it's making conspicuous something about the glory of God. And that, that word glory, kabod, um, literally refers to something's weight or significance. We still say things are weighty if they're really important. Like these are weighty matters, means they're really, really important, significant matters. That's the idea of glory. It's also the idea of splendor or beauty. This word handiwork is interesting because it's actually just the word hand. In fact, it's translated 859 times in the Old Testament, just hand. Like the skies are announcing or manifesting or making conspicuous God's hand, which is kind of like a figure of like his, uh, you know, like an artist would paint with their hand or draw with their hand. It shows like the control and the creativity of God is being declared. Going on with verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And just the basic idea there is all around the clock, whether day or night, and the next day and the next night and the next day and the next night is, is announcing speech, is pouring out, gushing speech over and over again, saying something about the majesty and glory of God. Now, 3 and 4 are interesting because it starts out, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And then he turns right around and says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And, and the paradox here that he's saying essentially is creation doesn't use actual words. So as you're seeing that sunset, you're seeing that sunrise, you're, you're listening to this crystal clear, clear stream like babbling along, or you look at these rocky cliffs in the snow and it's just breathtaking, you're not hearing actual words. There's not, there's not a human language like English 
that's being spoken. And yet his point is creation is speaking all the time this kind of universal but unspoken language. So regardless of your ethnicity, your background, your, your wealth or poverty or your gender or any other thing, we can all go out and look at the same scene in nature and we can all be awestruck by the same scene that's like speaking to us but not in a literal language and is speaking things like this. Again, we see this immense scale to the universe. I saw one of these uh, animations that kind of, you ever seen these that kind of start with you and then they start zooming out and give you some perspective of distance of like, this is how big your city is. This is how big your state is. This is how big your earth, your planet. Now, here's your place in the solar system. Now, here's your place in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, here's the place of that galaxy in the midst of other things. And you start to realize this immensity of scale that's being announced to us day after day, night after night, that there's a God who is big enough and powerful enough and himself immense enough to create all of this simply by speaking. We see this raw and uncontrollable power of nature it's like if you ever stood at the base of a waterfall and you just feel even like the wind coming off that water as it falls and then crashes on rocks below and you start to realize like there's something that I cannot begin to control that is under God's control. As you look at nature, you start to see like these, these intricacies and this purposeful design. You start realizing like it's almost like these things were made by a very wise creator taking these things and putting them together with these things so that there is sight, so that there's hearing, so that there's sensation, so that there's uh, some kind of purposeful design. And as I said, just like this breathtaking beauty that announces something of like, God could make a bland world, a colorless world, a textureless world, as it were, but that's not what he chose to do. And this is all announcing something about the splendor and the creativity and the power of God. Going on in verses 5 and 6, he says, In them, that is in the skies, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And there's kind of an interesting personification here. He's taking an inanimate object, the sun, and almost treating it like it has human qualities, like there's this tent. And he's just talking about the night. He's just, it's a poetic way of saying, it, it's like it goes away at night. It goes back to its tent. You know, and, and, and he's not an idiot, it's not like he thought the world was flat, and he's like, the, the sun has a tent, I guess, because it just gets dark. I mean, again, it's, it's poetry, and he's expressing something of like, it's like the bridegroom goes into the tent and comes out of the tent, and then the strong man runs its course each day, and then it's tired, and, it, and actually it's just on the other side of the earth doing the same, and he actually uses the word here, this circuit, so he understands there's this cycle, there's this circuit of the sun running and running. And by the way, he's speaking, there's, there's a word here, he's speaking phenomenologically. Okay, so when he says the sun rises and the sun sets, I mean, there are, there are scientists today that say, like, how is scripture correct? They're so foolish to think that the sun rises and sets. We, we actually know the sun is... I mean, it's not stationary, but relative to us, it's the center of our universe, and we're actually revolving around it, and the earth is rotating, and crazy language to say rising and setting, but 
Ironically, I mean, I was watching the news last night. I clicked on the weather and it said, sunrise and sunset are these times tomorrow. It's like, well, do these meteorologists not know that it's actually not rising and set? Well, no, it's just, it's just how we speak. Here's the key to this kind of verses 5 and 6, though, is the idea is every day as the sun runs its course, and he says nothing is hidden from its light and heat. Everything is impacted by the influence of the sun. You could even say the sun is absolutely essential to physical life. If that sun was not there and if the earth, you know, if it revolved much faster or much slower than it actually does, if we were much closer to the sun or further away from the sun, we would either freeze or burn up. And again, like there's this evidence of design that our world is turning and rotating and is at a distance where God has designed this to be essential to sustain life and to promote life. And just kind of summarizing this first few verses, the psalmist is saying the creation says something to every single person about the existence of God and the kind of God that he is. So every single day, in every country, in every generation, the creation is enumerating details of look at his power, look at his majesty, look at his beauty, look at his control. Look at his creativity. Look at his authority. Look at his wisdom. Um, by the way, if you're familiar with this, I, there's almost like a hyperlink to Romans chapter 1. And the idea in Romans 1 is that God has revealed himself to all humankind in ways that are plain and obvious. And he says this in verse 20 of Romans 1. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So humanity is without excuse. He's saying you have some light, some revelation, some teaching from God about God that's declared in all of nature. And again, I think it's useful to just, just pause for a moment and you think about a part of creation that kind of takes your breath away. And we live in a state where it's easy to see that sort of thing with the mountains and the snow and the streams and the wildlife. And what he's saying is that declaration of God's majesty and weightiness is universal and it's self-evident. Like it's laying on the surface everywhere we look. He says the, the only way you can miss it is if you deliberately miss it. It's if you see what creation is saying about God and you just say, well, I reject that and I'm going to believe something different, okay? By the way, I think this is fascinating. So we recently talked a little bit about science here and the fact that I, as a follower of Jesus, and you who are followers of Jesus, as most of you, like you don't have to fear science as if science and faith are at odds with each other and you're like, well, which, which do I believe? You know? The closer you look and the further you look and the deeper you look, what the psalmist could not have begun to have perceived a couple thousand years ago becomes even clearer to us. You know, the, the telescope and the microscope, one makes very tiny things like a snowflake, makes it big so you can see the intricacies of, of like literally no two snowflakes are the same. And if you look at them, 
under a very cold microscope that's not just melting them, you see these fascinating designs of how those atoms stack and build these beautiful, intricate designs. Or you can consider things like the, the golden ratio or the Fibonacci sequence. Have you heard of these things? That you can look at the, there, there are certain snails, for example, that you look at and the ratio of the curvature of their shell is always taking the two numbers before it and adding it together and putting it over here, then taking those two and adding it together and putting it here and stacking all the way around. That's called the Fibonacci sequence. And you actually see this replicated all throughout creation when you look very, very carefully, very closely, but also you can look telescopically at things that are very, very far away and you start to see some of these ratios showing up again and again. Okay? And, and we could go into like deep theories of science, like the dual nature of light. Do you know it functions as both a particle and a wave? Or what about the like, theory of relativity or the exact formula of gravitational attraction or these strong and weak nuclear forces that, you know, internal to every atom? You have something that's pulling it together so everything doesn't just fly apart, but you also have something pushing it apart so it doesn't just collapse in on itself. And those are the strong and weak nuclear forces Again, like it, on a very, very tiny microscopic scale, it's, it's almost as if there's a God who designed everything to be drawn together but held apart so that all things consist. And that's what the New Testament says, that in him all things consist. In him all things literally hold together. Okay? Now, what I've been describing in these first handful of verses here is what theologians refer to as general revelation. General revelation. It's the idea that, that creation is saying something pretty general about God to everyone. Okay? And there's actually an interesting detail here that I want to point out that shows you that it, it's kind of just enough to know God is there and he's powerful and he's worthy of our praise. But that brings us to this question, is creation enough? Do the, do the heavens, do the, does the earth, does that declare to us everything we need to know about God? And the answer is no. Now here's this clue. So in verses 1 through 6, I want you to notice that the Lord is referenced as God. It is the most basic, generic, broad title for God. It's just the Hebrew word El. And it can be used of the true God. It can be used of the false God. But the idea is there's just this all-powerful creator. That's the idea, El. Okay? But now let your eyes run ahead to verses 7 through 9. And you no longer see El or God. What you see is Lord, all capital letters. And that is his name, Yahweh. That's his covenant personal name. And the idea here is in the general revelation of creation, you can know there is a God who is powerful and great and majestic and beautiful and wise, and he's in control, and I need to learn more about this God. But as we go into what theologians call special revelation, that is, words that God spoke to prophets who wrote them down and communicated them to us in a book, the Bible, we learn about this personal covenant-keeping God named Yahweh. So this is the second point. First, if the skies proclaim God's glory, then the scriptures proclaim more specifically God's 
grace. To put it differently, creation will tell you all about God's greatness. You need scripture to tell you all about God's goodness. What is self-evident in creation is stuff like his power, his authority, his immensity. But creation alone can't tell you all about his mercy, his compassion, his love, his, his forgiveness, his desire to be reconciled. The skies alone can't tell you the story of redemption. It can point you in that direction, but we need scriptures to tell us how much God loves us and how God loves us. And that's where he begins in verse 7. Notice he says, the law of the Lord. Now turning to the scriptures, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I want to pause here for a moment and just point out, in this next couple of verses, you're going to see six words for God's word itself, like law, commandments, that kind of thing. You're going to see eight words that describe God's word, like here, perfect. And you're going to see four very important phrases talking about God's word's effect on us as we read it, as we meditate on it, as we learn and let it teach us. So let's, let's break it up that way. Let's start with those six words. So seven through nine, there's this reference to law, testimonies, precepts, commandments, fear, and the rules of the Lord. And a lot of ink has been spilled by commentators writing and writing and writing and saying, here's, here's all these nuances of like, what's a law versus a commandment versus a rule? And I think that actually misses the point. The, the big idea is simply these are six different words to say God is giving you some kind of revelation that is meant to be obeyed. And that's what all these six words have in common is, is like here's a path of life and you're meant to follow it. Okay? So we don't need to find nuance. It, again, it's poetry. So he's saying the same thing six different ways rather than saying six different things. And I want to just pause there for a second. The idea is when God gives us his word, it's not just advice. Like, oh, I don't know. Here's some stuff I found useful for me. Take it or leave it. You can, you know, eat the fish, spit out the bones. Find the parts that you like and do that and forget the rest. No, the idea is these, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules of the Lord. He's like, it's all of it there for your good. Follow it. Obey it. Submit your life to it. Okay? Now, with that basic fact, let's consider the character of God's word and the effect on us. Okay? The character is verses 7 through 9. I'll just read this again. Look for, the, look for the character words, like the descriptor words here. So he says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Again, taking multiple words to say a couple basic things. So I think there's three essential qualities that he's focused on here. Number one, he's saying scripture is the right standard, the level standard. And I've done this before. Where I literally bring like a construction level. And there's that little bubble that shows you like, is this, is this level? So before I build this piece of furniture or frame this wall in my house or hang a picture is this level. And this is an important illustration because it reminds us that like when God's word says it's right, it's level, it's true. It's not an arbitrary right. Like why, why is that bubble in the middle? Well, because that's what the bubble does. In the world that God has created, that, that bubble seeks its own level, and it ends up in the middle, okay? Um, 
this, this illustration was made more interesting a few times ago when I brought in, um, I had a, a cheap uh, construction square or like an L, if you've seen those, like a metal L bracket and it has measurements on it in both directions. The idea is you're supposed to be able to just quickly put that on something and make sure that before I nail these things together or screw these things together, I've got a perfect right angle. And it was pointed out to me as someone held this up, they said, um, this isn't actually a 90 degree angle. Your standard is wrong. Your standard is off. Therefore, everything that you would construct would be off just a little bit. Well, the idea of what David is confessing here and professing about Scripture is that you're not going to bump into that. He says, Scripture, God's Word is right. It is true in that sense of being square, plumb, level. And as you would hold your life up to that, to the degree that you hold your life up to the standard of God's Word, your life is right and true and level to the degree that you say, I'm going to do something a little different or I'm not going to submit to that, your life is falling out of plumb, we could say. And you're putting yourself in danger. So that's the first quality. The second quality is that Scripture is utterly true and trustworthy. And he says that a couple different ways. And the idea of, of being true is it, it conforms to reality. It corresponds to reality and is utterly reliable. A number of years ago, I noticed that this stamped concrete patio we had behind our house, between the house and the garage, I looked at the little mark where it met the house, and I noticed like there's a section against the house where it's, it's not painted. So what I realized is this, this whole concrete patio is starting to sag, and as it gets lower and lower, more and more of this unpainted side of the house is getting exposed. And so I go over to the edge of the patio and I pull back some bushes and pull back the mulch. And I could look like 20 feet under this patio. Because out here in Colorado, we have this problem with expansive soils. So the, the soil soaks up this water and expands. And then as it dries out, it contracts. Well, this subsurface had not been properly either prepared or replaced with some kind of soil that wasn't going to do that. And so as it rained, and that would swell and then shrink and swell and shrink, and this whole thing was like pushing up and then falling down and pushing up and falling down, and eventually it fell far enough down, it cracked. I actually had to get in there and do some mud jacking where you put wet concrete underneath it and lift it back up. I'm using this to illustrate, like, when, when God is representing to us, my word is true and trustworthy. It is that as you're, as you're pouring this foundation for your life on top of the foundation of God's word, it is completely reliable. It is not going to just one day be here at this level and another day just kind of fall out and let you down. There's not an instability to it or an untrustworthiness to it. It's the opposite. It's completely, utterly true and trustworthy and then thirdly, this third major quality is that Scripture is pristinely clear and pure. I remember going a couple years ago with Marty to Lake Tahoe and walking out on this pier. And I'm used to these lakes in Colorado that have, like, I don't even know what's in the water. Probably don't want to know. But um, Lake Grand Lake and Shadow Mountain, you look down in the water, and within a few inches already, you can't really see into the water. We walk way out on this pier in Lake Tahoe, and we're walking and walking and walking, and the water's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm like, this is crystal clear. Like, you can see fish swimming, like, way down there. Just 
going by and you know, it gets bluer and bluer as you have more and more water stacked up on itself and it's reflecting the light differently. But I was thinking, you know, would I just take a glass like this and just like scoop some of that water out and drink it because it looks really clear. And, and maybe it is, I don't, I don't know about Tahoe specifically, but do you know water could look like that and still have like microorganisms like bacteria, um, like parasites, stuff like that that are so tiny the water still looks clear to the naked eye, but if you pop that under a microscope, you might see little things like squiggling across the screen. Or these things called like TDS, you know, when you go to buy your Brita filter and there's the thing next to it and it's like, don't buy the Brita, buy this instead because there's total dissolved solids if you filter this water. And maybe you even notice like a difference when you taste tap water, then you filter it and it's it's taking all those little tiny things, whether it's a living parasite that could harm you or just some of these solids like chromium or lead. And that's the idea of the word, is that it's not that it's been filtered, but that it is, it is completely pure all the way down to like the molecular level where there is nothing in there that is gonna defile or harm you. That's the idea, okay? So it's the right level standard, utterly true and trustworthy, pristinely clear and pure. Now. What effect does that have on my life and on your life as we get it in us then? And there's, there's four things here. Starting with verse 7, notice he says that the word of God is reviving the soul. And reviving is a word that means like transforming or restoring. And it's related to a quality about it. If the word of God is perfect... That's a word we've been using in Psalm for blameless or complete. And the idea is it is comprehensive. Okay? There's, there's nothing that you need for life and godliness that is outside of the word of God. That as you want to be restored, as you want to be renewed day by day, it's all in the word. There's not an area of your life or a question that you could ask or a doubt or a fear or a sin struggle or an area of brokenness that the scripture is not touching on where God says, let me restore that too. Okay, give that to me. Let me speak to that. Let me restore and renew. Let me revive that part of you. And I want you to notice we're, we're starting to get into words and phrases here that show you the uniqueness of special revelation. So if something's reviving your soul, it's restoring your soul, that is spiritual. That's not just, oh, God is powerful and God is beautiful and God is uh, in control and he has authority and look at the design that he worked. Now he's like, let me take hold of your life and spiritually begin this renewal in you through special revelation. So reviving the soul. Secondly, the second effect of scripture on us is making wise the simple. And the basic idea is David's just like, the, the word of God gives you true and practical wisdom. And by the way, wisdom is, is an important distinction from just knowledge. The idea is not that you simply know something cognitively, okay? The idea is not that you just memorize facts. You all know people who are like book smart but not street smart. <laughs> you would say they're, they're in, intelligent but they're not wise. You know what I'm talking about? So the idea here is not... Scripture is not just trying to bombard you with facts and be like, be intelligent, know the facts. It's like, no, Scripture wants to make you wise so that you're not naive, you're not foolish, that you can read the times that you're living in. You can see like, okay, there, there are negative things going on in culture. I know how to respond to those things with true wisdom, with practical street-level wisdom because the Scripture has, 
taken away my naivete, my ignorance, and made me truly wise. And by the way, Scripture says over and over, including David himself, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Scripture teaches us the fear of the Lord, both that awe, like, whoa, kind of fear, but also that reverence, that respect, that admiration, that love. So making wise the simple. A third effect of the Word of God is rejoicing the heart. The idea here is simply the Word of God is bringing us delight instead of disappointment. Um, And it's interesting that this is related to the fact that the Word of God is right and level and true. Because you ever ever build something or like even just hang a picture? You ever like spend all this time to get it just right and you find the studs and you put those things in, you hang this big heavy mirror and you step back and it's crooked. Or or you go to Ikea and you get the bed with 14,000 parts. And at this one stage where you're supposed to put in all the slats for the bed, you, you get, it's, it's off by one, but it still worked on the first one. Then you get to the very last one, and there's no place to put that last screw. And you don't feel delight. You feel disappointment. You feel frustration. You feel anger. It's interesting to me that he relates the delight, the rejoicing of the heart that the Scripture brings to us by the fact that we're building our lives based on a standard that you're not going to get to the end and be let down. You're going to get to the end and be like, I did it. I did it God's way. I did it imperfectly. I fell down. I got back up. God forgave me. God helped me. But it rejoices my heart because I'm building a life on his foundation that is sturdy and square and reliable and trustworthy is the idea. And then the fourth And final way that the scripture impacts us here in this psalm is verse 8b, enlightening the eyes. And the idea here is just like opening your eyes and shining in the light. And it's indicative of like if if light's coming in your eyes, there's illumination coming into your mind is the idea, our heart, our mind. And he's saying apart from God's word, there's a sense in which we walk in darkness. We're not aware. We're not as clued in. And God brings this light to our eyes, to our thoughts. All right, summarizing, he's saying the word of God opens our eyes, our hearts, our minds to truth and beauty, to right and wrong, to what's clean, what's filthy, what's straight, what's crooked. And it also opens our hearts and our minds to this is how God takes things that are filthy and crooked and not right and wants to make them clean wants to make them straight, wants to make them pure. And family, where, where your soul may be burdened with something this morning, you may feel beat down with like just the brokenness of our world or the brokenness of your own life that isn't going according to plan, or you may, you may feel just like a sense of guilt, like literal guilt over sin or shame over something that's happened in your life. Like I want you to hear this. When that light comes in and he's enlightening your eyes, He's exposing something that's there. But this is important. God doesn't expose what's there to humiliate his children. He exposes what's there to heal his children. Okay? And I think of, um, I I got one of these the other day for our basement. Carbon monoxide detector. So carbon monoxide is this, like, colorless, odorless gas by itself. It's kind of like natural gas where if you... if you smell that, like, rotten egg thing, 
it's because Excel Energy has added that rotten egg thing to it so that you're not just dead or blowing up your house. Well, carbon monoxide on its own, like you don't see it, you don't smell it. Um, and people are literally just like not waking up in the morning because some appliance like their gas furnace had a leak of carbon monoxide and slowly overnight it could, it could poison you and kill you, okay? And, and what this carbon monoxide detector does, and I'm not sure how it works, but it's this little box, you can run it on batteries or you can plug it in. And this carbon monoxide detect detector is like, first of all, it's detecting that thing that's harmful to you. And then it's sounding an alarm, like this little screeching thing goes off and says like, carbon monoxide has been detected, like get out of your house and call, you know, call the utility company or call 911 or like whatever you're supposed to do. So his idea is that's what God's word is doing for you. It's detecting what you can't, and it's enlightening you, and it's, it's warning you. And that's where he's going to go to here in a moment of this, like, idea of warning. But we're, we're looking at the two big sections now. And again, I want you to see, like, verses, was it 1 through 6, general revelation, all about God and his glory, his majesty, his splendor, his power. Okay? And he's saying, just as you need the sun for physical life... Then he goes to verses 7 through 10, and it's this special revelation. It's the law of God. It's the word of God. And he's saying this reveals a covenant, personal God that you can know and have relationship with. And just as the physical son is necessary for physical life, this son, S-O-N, the son of God, you need to know him. And he's just as critical to spiritual life. And you see this parallel. He's saying, not only do you need to know God as creator and Lord, you need to know him as savior, one who revives your soul, one who delights your heart. Okay. Now, in closing, how do we respond to God's self-revelation? That is, whether you see it in nature or whether you see it directly in the word of God or your personal devotions in the word of God or a sermon like this that's unpacking some part of the word of God, how are we called to respond? I'm going to show you three things that David does here and then we're done. So first of all, respond by seeing the incomparable worth of Scripture. That's the first thing you see in verse 10 where he says, I'm looking at Scripture. I'm enumerating these character qualities of Scripture. It's doing this to my soul, my heart, my mind. And then he says this, verse 10, more to be desired are they, these words of God, more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And what David's doing is in poetic language, he's comparing Scripture to the most valuable thing they knew, gold, refined gold, and he's comparing it to the sweetest thing that he knew, honey. And one is kind of like there's this objective intrinsic worth to gold, and the other is there's this subjective personal delight in something that's sweet to the palate. I love that. He's saying scripture's both. It's both objectively beautiful, valuable, and it's subjectively, personally, a delight to me. It's what I need. Um, and I want to just pause there. When I say we see David responding and saying, there, there is nothing I desire more than God's word in my life. Not, not money, not riches, not, not the best meal the most satisfying thing. And I ask this not rhetorically. Like, is that how you feel toward the word of God? 
is there like a gravitational pull of like, I can't wait to get back to the word and study a little bit more, learn a little bit more, just, just be reminded of the goodness of God. And, uh, and I get this convicting thing every Sunday morning. I don't know why this comes on Sunday mornings. Does anybody else get this on Sunday morning with your iPhone? It tells you like, here's your weekly report. I'm getting ready to get up and preach, and I think, man, I'm, I've done pretty well this week. And it's like, your daily report of time spent on your phone was this. Um, and I remember John Piper saying one time that when those notifications started, it just obliterated everyone's concept of like, I just don't have time to spend in the Word of God. Because like, well, you spent six hours and 47 minutes a day on your phone, probably reading your Bible app, right? Yeah. I mean, it's why I, I still love like just like a hard copy Bible that lets me set this and all its notifications aside and just be like, let me just write in this and meditate on this. And I, I intend what I just said. If, if it needs to be a conviction, like an exhortation, then receive it that way. If, if you don't delight in God's world, word and you don't value it that way, like ask yourself, why is that? What hinders me from loving and treasuring the word of God the way that David does. And David didn't even have the gospels. I mean, you think about the word of God that he's referring to thousands of years. He didn't have the gospels, which is the best part, right? The stories of Jesus. He didn't have the, the letters, the epistles to the different churches that tell us how to live this life of grace that Jesus has brought us into contact with. So how does God want you to respond? by seeing the incomparable worth of Scripture. Secondly, second response, respond by turning away from sin. This is verses 11 through 14. He says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And he's, he's referring to a couple of different categories of sin here. The presumptuous sins is just like the arrogant, like sinning with a high hand. It's like, I know this is wrong. I know this displeases God, but it's what my flesh wants right now, so I'm going to do this. Or God's calling you, prompting you to do something good on behalf of someone else, and maybe you feel selfish, and you're like, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm not ready to forgive. And we can sin presumptuously by things that we do, purposely overstepping a boundary, or we can sin presumptuously by withholding something or even like holding an attitude that we're like, I know this pride is wrong, I know this anger is wrong, this bitterness is wrong, uh, but I'm going to hang on to it a little bit long. I'm not ready to let it go. That's the idea of the presumptuous sin that he's saying God and his word want to hold you back from, restrain you from, and deliver you from. But then there's this other kind of sin that he mentions where he's like, God, who can discern, like, all his errors? And he refers to hidden faults. And you find this true that there, there are things that you do that maybe later, like months or years later, you're reading something in the Bible somewhere, and you're like, I didn't even know that was wrong. Like, now i got to add that to my list of things not to do. Or I find this probably more often true of like, here are the good things, like the priority things that I should be giving my life to, and I'm not necessarily making those the priority. And then you read those, and you're like, I didn't even know that that was wrong. 
And if we were having to keep a list, and if God were keeping a list, and it was like, well, if you confess every hidden thing, but the idea is it's hidden from you, even as you do it or fail to do it. It's not just that you're sinning and hiding it from other people. The idea here is how are we supposed to discern our errors? Um, and again, that's, that's this idea of this carbon monoxide detector. We need the carbon monoxide detector of God's word to see and detect things that we don't naturally see and detect and to sound this alarm in my life. And then the, the way that we respond in faith is this simple thing that the Bible calls repentance, which is like the good news, family, is not that you and I are perfect. The good news is that as God shows us something that's wrong, we can confess that sin, and God is faithful and righteous to forgive that sin and to not hold that against us. But as he goes on to say, he actually considers you blameless as he shows you something and you respond to that something and you allow him to continually transform your life and forgive and cleanse your life so that now your, your, your life is looking more and more like Jesus and less and less just like you. Then this third way of responding so again, we're treasuring it. We're turning away from the things that God is warning us about. And then thirdly, respond by praising the Lord as your defender and redeemer. This is verse 14 where he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And this rock and redeemer connects it to what we talked about last week. And I'm not going to run back through that. But you see a continuity with these psalms. The idea is God, the, the rock is the protector and the Redeemer is the Deliverer. So you are protecting me, but you're also rescuing me. And, and this is kind of an interesting irony where, where if he's saying, God, let, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, be favorable, be pleasing in your sight. Well, he's, he's talking to a God who sees everything, who hears everything, who knows everything, okay? And you just think about the words that you've spoken like this week like all the words, you think about all the meditation of your heart over a period of time, and you may say, like, a, a good portion of those words were good. A good portion of my meditations were things that honored God. But I don't think any one of us could say, oh, the meditation of my heart is constantly just, just effusively praising God and focused on, well, we'd have to admit, like, I turn my attention to things, and I'm mulling over things that, that are hurtful to me, hurtful of other image bearers. That, that don't look like God, let alone some of the words that come out of our mouths, kind of the same, words that cut, words that don't bring healing but bring harm to others. But this, this brings us right back to this special revelation of Scripture where he says, okay, God, you know my words, you know my heart, but he's actually saying here, you make me innocent. I'm not innocent in and of myself. But as he focuses on this one that he calls rock and redeemer, this one who would be Jesus, he's saying, I trust you to protect me and to rescue me, yes, even from myself, to cover me, to forgive my sins, and to bring me back in right relationship with you. And then he's, you know, my, my point is to respond and praise God, not just, not just accept, okay, great, you're my rock and my redeemer. He's like, no, I want to announce that to other people, that this Jesus is my protection. This Jesus is my rescuer. Okay, so in closing, 
Ask a couple questions like this. Am I living at a pace and with a focus to see the manifold glories of God being displayed in creation? I think oftentimes we are too harried. We're too frantic. We're too stressed out. And again, we're, we're surrounded by beautiful things just in creation, just starting there, where I'm encouraging you to live at a pace and with a focus that allows you to enjoy those things and to like deliberately pause and think. And maybe you're telling your kids or somebody else's kids, but you're telling someone else what this is showing you about God. So you get in that mindset of like all of creation is saying something to me about the glory of God. And then is God's word, the special revelation, is it this incomparable treasure and why or why not? And if it's not, like, man, look, I'd love to have those conversations of like, how do you, how do you get kind of back in love with God and back in love with his word when you feel like I've drifted a little bit, my heart's numb or it's cold or I don't feel as close to him as I used to, but you can this morning be that close again. Is my entire life a repudiation of known and unknown sin in order to know Christ more? As God is pointing out things in his word and again shining that light not to humiliate and embarrass you but to heal you to restore you, are you receiving that restoration? And my desire is that, that we be a, a church family. It's not just like, well, I'm familiar with it. I'm, I read it. But we're like, I can't wait to tear into it and search it and let it search me. Search it and let it search me. Because that's where our restoration is found. We are made to respond to the glory of God in creation and the grace of God in his word.